Hello, Hidden Pills podcast fans. Super excited for the show tonight. We are honored this week to have with us an individual who is not only a great football player, he's a two-time Pro Bowler at two different positions and a three-time Super Bowl winner, but also an outstanding person. He has been his team's nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award four times and is an ongoing major contributor to his community. We welcome to the show New England Patriots DB Devin McCourty. Devin is currently on the leadership team with the Players Coalition and is part one of our three-part series on the work of the Players Coalition to end social injustice and racial inequality. He is here today to talk about the Players Coalition and specifically his role as a team leader for the Players Coalition Pillar on Education. So welcome, Devin. Super excited. Thank you. <laughs> like it. There we go. Joining him today and also a part of the Players Coalition leadership team is Dr. Chelsea Hayward, who works tirelessly on behalf of the Players Coalition in advancing their mission. Thank you both for being here and joining us tonight on Hidden Pearls Podcast. So let's start with Dr. Hayward. Um, Dr. Hayward's work focuses on improving the effectiveness of athlete activism with an emphasis on systemic change, engaging athletes into action beyond awareness. Throughout her career, she has established a policy reform framework specific to professional athletes looking to engage in generational social justice reform and a hierarchy of culture to best analyze populations. On the Players Coalition leadership team, her role services several touch points of the organization, including digital media, branding, and player relations. A lifelong learner, Dr. Hayward is also a research associate for the Identity Art and Democracy Lab and a sport, culture, and power professor at Morehouse College. Dr. Hayward teaches sport and U.S. culture in the graduate program of sport management at California State University, Long Beach power professor. I think we're going to have to get into that later. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. All right. All right. And Devin. Um, Devin McCourty is a two-time Pro Bowler, three-time Super Bowl champion, defensive captain for the New England Patriots, and chair of the Players Coalition Education and Economic Advancement Committee. Playing his college ball at Rutgers University, he joins Pro Football Hall of Famer Hall of Famers Rod Woodson and Ronnie Lott as one of only three players to earn all pro honors at both safety and cornerback. In 2019, McCourty advocated for the Education Promise Act and testified in front of the legislation's the legislators joint committee in support of the bill. The legislation, which will provide education funding to low income areas later passed. McCourty was among the coalition members who successfully lobbied lawmakers in Massachusetts to raise the age from seven to 12 at which children can be charged in juvenile court. Devin McCourty was recently nominated for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award for the fourth time in his career. That's incredible. Um, yeah, so welcome. Uh, thank you. It's <laughs> a mouthful, but we're so excited to have you guys. And we wanted to make sure that we get all those accolades out there. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you both with us. Um, honestly, we have wanted to highlight the work of the Players Coalition on Hidden Pearls podcast for some time, um, really for over a year now. We were just joking before the show that Dr. Hayward and Pops have probably been emailing for as long as the show has like been an idea in his brain, like a little spark. He immediately started emailing you guys. So this is a really, we're super, super excited. Um, and now we really want to expose and talk about the different four pillars. Um, so we feel it is important to do so because the Players Coalition gives voice to the leverage of the many, many players throughout the NFL, both firmer and current, who are dedicated to the mission of ending social injustice and racial inequality. So we are very excited to get these series started. And 
Braden Pearls podcast, our mission is to share the untold stories of social and environmental injustice. So this is so, we're so excited. <laughs> so today we'll be reviewing broadly the work of the Players Coalition and then specifically the pillar of education and the efforts of the Players Coalition at reforms in this area. Education is clearly an, a huge issue in working towards racial equality and ending social injustice. And we are excited to dive deeper into this topic. It is a great honor to have both of you here and to talk about these very important issues. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us and sharing your leaderships in this area. But before we get into all that stuff, Devin, we'd love to talk to you about yourself and how the offseason was and uh, what OTAs is looking like. You kind of told us a little bit beforehand, but, you know, just how was your offseason you know, and just since the season's been over? Yeah, man, offseason's been good, I think. Uh, you know, you know, as an athlete, especially being in New England, go, gone to the playoffs, uh, 10 out of my first 11 years in the NFL and uh, not going to the playoffs this year, uh, found myself with a lot of extra time in the offseason. So I uh, just took advantage of that, was able to, to start kind of rehabbing some uh, injuries that have been lingering for a while. And then obviously uh, the biggest thing was just being able to be with the family. We got to go away uh, after, you know, like everyone, a long time of kind of being stuck inside. So um, that part of it was great. And then now, you know, just in the grind, you know, working out, training, um, getting ready to go back and, and attend some of the OTAs and be with the guys uh, out there in Foxborough. So uh, it's always like that kind of first day of school atmosphere during this time of year of getting to know the new guys that you brought in through free agency and then the rookies um, and just starting to form the team. So I'm excited uh, about the season uh, that's coming forward. And uh, I'm still mad at you guys for, for whooping up on us at home last year, but uh, we won't spend too much time on that. No, I was so excited to play in Foxborough, man. Like, I literally had to stand out there before I, like, you step on the field for warm-ups and just look around. Like, there's been some unreal games here. Like, yeah, it's crazy. AFC Championship games, like, Sunday night football games, like, all those games that, like, you guys have just won. That were just gritty, the terrible weather, cold, sleet. Like, it doesn't matter. But, like, it, like I had to take a breath and be like, wow. Like, the yeah. amount of that's been in here in the last – 15, 20 years has just been outrageous. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was like one of the, I'm just happy to be able to play there. That was really cool for me. Sacred turf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's, you know, it's love them or hate them, but they're still the Patriots. And they're <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And, yeah. Well, that must have been pretty rough, your 11th year and not making the playoffs. I feel terrible. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, that's brutal. It's, it's, it's funny because you know, like, you go through it and you feel bad, but you're like, Nobody else in the NFL feels bad for New England not going to the playoffs. So we got to get back there this year. Oh, I know. Yeah, I lost a lot of sleep over that one for you guys. That extra, that extra month off, though, that's crazy, right? It's crazy. Just like it's crazy. It sucks, but like my body was like, man, this isn't bad, buddy. Oh, it's great. Yeah, a little bit of extra rest. So, all right, uh, Dr. Hayward, then before we uh, do, I just want to talk a little bit more. So, uh, we did introduce you to a very impressive resume and bio and so we're grateful and I know the Players Coalition is about all the stuff that you're doing so the snippet of the, your work is about improving the effectiveness of athlete activism with an emphasis on systemic change so I, I'm thinking that's a lot of your overlap with the Players Coalition but maybe could you say just a little bit more kind of about your overall focus and what you're doing and how has this you know past four six eight months been for you in your work? Yeah, so they really all go hand in hand, um, but they don't happen without guys like Devin that are committed to the work first and foremost. And so it's through players like that over the past several years before this last year and um, all that had happened with the George Floyd murder. Um, guys like that doing the work before any of it was popular when it was still taboo was really where I got my start. And so recognizing that 
out of all the things that were happening, people were tweeting or wearing t-shirts or raising awareness around issues, but systems weren't changing. And so in coming up with the Players Coalition, I recognized that it was important to change the systems surrounding some of these issues, because if we're just raising awareness around something, all it is is knowing about what's happening without changing what's happening. And so a lot of my work focuses on that, changing the system surrounding something. And so this last year, four to six months specifically, um, has been pretty crazy because before George Floyd, this was a non-normative behavior. And that's what my research focus on is how to get this at its most effective scale, understanding the small, small populations of athletes that actually look at it in this framework. Um, and so following last year with the boom of Players Coalition and the boom of athletes committing to the cause from a systemic standpoint, um, it was really a lot, of, a lot of research, a lot of work um, and a lot of change. And now to date, Players Coalition has had 21 laws changed, which when we talk about systemic change, it's either through resource equity or um, legislative reform. And so through that work of the Players Coalition, we've seen this come to fruition. And I drank the Kool-Aid all the way and thinking that athletes are, are, the, are the move for getting some of these laws and stuff changed just because it accelerates it so quickly. Okay, so basically taking some famous players who have some leverage and people might listen to and helping them position themselves in a way that can convince lawmakers and the like to either change the laws, and maybe this is kind of both, right? So you change laws, but part of the laws also dictate funding. And then to the extent those don't, to re look again at how we're kind of redistributing or distribution of equity as far as assets and revenue and funding for various things that we're worried about. So those would be the two prongs of the work that you primarily have been doing? Yeah, 100%, because I think the thing that goes overlooked with that when athletes get involved in these spaces is that two things happen. Either legislators recognize athletes are watching, so they know that that means that their audience is watching, and if they want to get reelected, they probably better do the right thing. Or two, they're fans. And so being able to impress or rub shoulders or just get in conversation with some of these guys persuades them into doing what they may not have already been doing, um, but really it, it comes down to the attention, whether it's attention for self-gain or attention for their um, political platform. Yeah. And honestly, we don't really care as long as they start voting in the right direction. Right? We still so, care. We still and, care. And, but. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, like Dr. Hayward said, I remember the first time uh, was me, Troy Brown, and uh, Ulysses Booker. Uh, we went to the State House in Massachusetts and I think they all kind of thought like this was a cool photo op. Like we wanted to kind of see, you know, what they were doing. And we just started talking to them about different things that were going on in the communities, whether it was police in schools, um, whether it was the lack of resources. We just started talking and, and you can tell, you know, some of the people, some of the legislators faces was like, whoa, like, OK, like these guys came in here prepared to talk about real issues um, because you could tell right away when we walked in, it was like, let's get a picture. Let's do this. And we did all those things and it was like, all right, now let's do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I think that's when I know for me, uh, I really kind of was like, all right, I need to get more involved because you can see uh, the impact that it would have um, the more we knew what we were talking about, the more involved we got, the more we showed up. So, um, you know, what Dr. Hay was saying is I got to see firsthand and that was, I think, three years ago in the off season where we just decided to go to the state house and, and talk to a couple of legislators and then hold a press conference. And from there on out, you know, we start to see policies and laws change. Yeah. Makes a difference when it's somebody like you holding people accountable for what they say and do versus 
just Joe and Jane public citizen type thing. So yeah. kudos for you guys for staying involved in doing that. So uh, I, have a, I have a question really quick. So Devin, um, in thinking about testifying, was that scarier, like the pressure or just like, I mean, because it's a performance, right? Like you're, you're getting up to give a speech and to make a change and people are like depending on you. What was the feeling like? Was it kind of like the nerves of a football game or like a big playoff game? Like, what did it feel like? No, it's funny you said that because the first time we went to the state house, we didn't testify. We just had a press conference in the state house, and it was it was kind of cool. Um, and then we went back, you know, me, uh, my brother Matthew Slater, and Deron Harmon. Uh, and it's funny because as athletes, like George knows, and you know, we're prepared. We go through the whole week. We watch film. We talk to our coaches. If we see something come up on film, we come in the next day like, hey, if this happens, to the point sometimes where your coach is like, hey, just relax. Like, let's see some things. And that's how we were. We were meeting with different people. We were asking, we're like, well, what happens if they ask us a question? How do we respond? What's too aggressive? What's not a great like? And they kind of were like, you guys will be good. They won't ask you any questions. They won't do this. They, they're not used to uh, professional athletes coming in. So we kind of went in there, and this was this was when we went in 2018, well, 19, right after we won the Super Bowl. And all of us, way more nervous, scared, kind of <laughs> anxious than going out there for the opening kickoff. Um, and then once we got rolling, we were good. And then uh, the funny thing is they opened it up for questions, and right away <laughs> – we got a question. Um, and I was, I've been the guy on the team that's been grabbing guys. Like, hey, come with me here. Go. So when they asked the question, it was funny because I looked at the guys and all of the guys just looked at me. And, you know, but it was great because because we did all the preparation, because we read like the 10 to 20 pages um, leading up to it to be well educated. Like we were able to answer. I was able to answer the question and you can tell, you know, Everyone in there, and this time there was like three or four hundred people in there watching and uh, up next to testify. And the people start, you know, everything starts going. So um, it was a great feeling. It was kind of like being on the field and like the crowd goes crazy. Um, but it was, I think for us, it was something that we needed to do. And, you know, I think it took a lot of the nerves off for in the future if we have to do that. Cool thing too about this work is that it's scalable like from rookie to vet so like what Devin's saying is like vet status that's not the standard that everyone needs to come in at it could just be like a social media campaign or meeting with an elected official where we prep for questions but then the level that you can get to is being able to testify at the state house having prepped and having read and I think that campaign was like eight months long and so they had had all this time that they were digesting all this information so it wasn't something where we took them off the field and said all right learn this and go. <laughs> So, and I just, in, when I hear you make that comment, what I'm hearing is a solicitation to other players who might want to be interested in supporting the coalition. And Drink the Kool-Aid. Nobody's going to throw you fully <laughs> prepared. You can start small, take small steps, and kind of work your way in. You don't ever get asked to do something you're not comfortable doing. So, at least I'm hearing that. And I know that, you know, there's other guys out there that probably have a platform. And if they're not involved, this would be a pitch to some of those guys to maybe step up a little bit and put their name in the hat and maybe participate a little bit more. So anyway, I'll just make that plug for you because I, I really believe in what this is about and the differences and changes that you're making and the power that athletes do bring. I mean, people, whether you like it or not, it's just true, you know, and, and so the, the ability and willingness to use that platform in that way is really commendable. So really appreciate that. And Dr. Hey, we'll just keep pitching those and we'll keep, we'll keep shaking the case. <laughs> so, all right, George, you want to go there? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. 
So, Devin, I know like, I appreciate you saying all that because I think I learned a lot just listening to both of you talk there for like five minutes. So thank you for that. Um, but like we could, you know, come on the podcast, we can talk about you know, Super Bowls and Walter Payton Man of the Year, which is awesome. But like what Hidden Pros we focus on is the nonprofits. And a really big part of those nonprofits is the players that are behind them and why they care so much. And so, like I said, like you've been nominated four times for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, which is amazing. That's like, I think that's, I mean, I would like to win a Super Bowl, but I think that's just as cool as winning a Super Bowl because of the things that you do in your community. It's more than just football. And like we've talked about the platform and like just being able to go help people. And so what I'd like to ask you is like, why are you so committed to being a part of your community? Like what has made you want to be like nominated for the Walter, Walter Payton Man of the Year Award? Like why does that mean so much to you? Yeah, I think it's more just how I grew up in the environment. I grew up in an apartment complex, uh, Section 8, uh, government funding, um, and our whole community kind of looked after each other. And as a kid, it got to the point where you were mad because the neighbor would tell on you anytime you did something wrong, if your mom wasn't there. Um, and it was kind of like that helping hand. And, you know, early in my career, uh, Jason and myself, we wanted to give back, we wanted to do different things. And um, it started with us with sickle cell disease. Um, our aunt, our uncle, um, and our grandfather all had the disease. And our father, uh, he carried the sickle cell trait. Um, and through there, I think, is when we really kind of got into giving back and hosting different events and doing things like that. And um, the parallel of sickle cells, it's kind of crazy because just a few weeks ago, the New York Times came out with an article showing that, you know, in different you know, police altercations with um, different suspects uh, arrested or uh, during a, a, an arrest and someone would get hurt and sometimes killed or different things a lot of times they blame it. They see the person has the sickle cell trait and they'll blame the death on the sickle cell trait or this happened because of sickle cell trait, even though a lot of these things could happen to anyone without the sickle cell trait. Um, but the New York Times showed on an investigation that that had been used numerous times um, in different incidents. And I think it was through things like that as we continue to do work and, um, you know, obviously being in Boston and, you know, different things that went on there in the history of uh, Boston, as we've seen highlighted over the last few uh, weeks with the NBA playoffs. Um, we kind of was like, you know, there's more we can do. You know, we were doing everything in a kind of charity world. And, and like Dr. Hayward said, um, it wasn't popular to kind of get and move into this direction of speaking out, speaking about racism, speaking about inequalities in communities, about lack of resources. Um, so we kind of was like, this falls right into what we were doing. Um, but now it's not about, you know, people patting you on the back saying it's great you're raising money for that charity. It was people who was angry. And I think through there, we found like, hey, we found something good. If, if everyone's not happy and we know this is wrong, that means more people need to hear about it. So um, it's just grown, you know, obviously linking with Malcolm, me and Malcolm go back since uh, playing an all-star game in high school and, and linking with him and his vision and Anquan's vision. Um, it's been great to just be a part of the coalition um, because it's a group of men and women that all want to do the same thing and no one cares about getting credit. It's just about how we can make a difference. Um, and it's a lot of people, I think, working behind the scenes uh, like Dr. Haywood and, and, you know, Angela, like so many different people and, you know, hats off to them because a lot of times they get a text from one of us like, hey, I saw this. I'm interested in it. Um, I don't know a ton about it. Can you help me out? And then, you know, within a day or two, we get an email with like 25 pages of anything you can possibly find on it. Um, and that's been huge, I think, for us um, of 
you know, obviously getting involved and learning things from home. But even when people bring us stuff that we're kind of interested in, uh, we get to kind of fact check it and really get to advance in different things um, because of the whole team that's assembled. Yeah. You know, I just want to highlight, though, I, I think, though, the the movement from like doing work with charities and like, you know, raising for, you know, underserved populations and all that kind of stuff. It's all kind of cute, warm and fuzzy and people will write you checks. But once you start pointing out like systemic social injustice issues and long kind of built in, you know, racial discrimination issues and how it impacts people and where it comes from. And like you're starting to say, hey, we need to change this stuff. It, it is a difference for people. You know, it's like we're not just going to go look at the kids. Aren't they cute? Like, you know, we're, we're coming to change things. And so I guess I just want to say again, I mean, that's a different it's a different world to put yourself into. I just really want to commend you and the work of the Players Coalition because it's it really takes that, you know, to start moving in the direction we're going to go. So now, appreciate that. So, Dr. Hayward, you have committed yourself to working in this field. And so what makes you tick on this? Why, why is this important to you to make systemic change in these areas? I think it's important to me because we see how accelerated change happens when athletes get involved. And so recognizing that sort of loophole in the system we're like, okay, people have been fighting for this for decades and decades, but now we have athletes coming in and speaking out on something and we see things change almost overnight. Um, in Florida specifically, there was an example when we first started with uh, one of our co-founders, Anquan Bolden, who had been trying to get voting rights restored to recently returned citizens. Um, and everyone was trying to get a meeting with elected officials. And this one official in particular, a grassroots group had been working for six months to try to get this to get on their calendar. And then Anquan came and they had a meeting in two weeks. And so to just see that sort of time shift and to see that sort of attention again, because it's either politically motivated or personally motivated, whatever the reasoning, change happens more quickly when athletes get involved. And so that motivates me because Ange and I always say that we get to live vicariously through the players, because if anyone cared who we were, we'd be shouting from the rooftops about these issues too. But since we're just amongst the rest of us, um, we utilize the platform that we've been given responsibly to make sure that we can push forward the changes that aren't seen um, on the day in and day out basis. And that's really what Players Coalition is, is the platform. We don't position ourselves as the experts. We surround ourselves with experts and then make sure that all the groups getting um, all the groups doing the work day in and day out are those who get the credit. And so seeing all of that, seeing how individual lives are changed when you see someone vote for the first time in their 45 years of life because they would now have the right to vote again because of a law that was changed. Um, when you see $1.4 billion poured into the Boston public school system because Devin and the guys were working on getting that funding to students and knowing that students are the future, it just trickles down and I could go on and on. But I think seeing it both from from an academic perspective of how this accelerates and then from a personal perspective of the individual lives that are changed when um, these guys are at the table is really just so moving and empowering. Okay, and I, we can jump on too, but but why why is that so important to you? I mean, I hear why you're working with athletes and they get more bang for the buck and all that, but like there's some, like where are you coming from? Um, like, you could have gone into research and just taught sport classes and hung out, but you're putting yourself out on the line and you're working with guys and doing all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, is there something else? I mean, and if it's not, that's okay. I just wonder, there's like, why? Yeah, so I'm personally passionate about sports. So having that, having something I love to do makes it not work. Um, a and B, I have an older brother actually who has cerebral palsy. Um, he was born at 27 weeks instead of 40. 
And so seeing how his life's unfolded um, as a special needs person and all of the people that have poured into and cared for him and the gratitude that I have just for the people that support him has just from my own birth, because he's older than me, that's all I've ever known, um, made me want to care for the left out and the looked over as much as other people have cared for my brother. So super personally, that's my drive. Um, in addition to just being passionate about sports. So if I get to marry those, if I get to marry those two, um, that's where you'll find me. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I, I wasn't trying, but I just like, you know, it is personal. You know what I mean? And when you get yeah. to know people who do get left behind, like you said, it, you know, it changes you. You know what I mean? And then, like you said, when you see the results and how more money coming in and kids are getting educated in a different way, I mean, it really does. It's transformative both for those who are trying to help and for the people involved in getting the help. So anyway, so thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, let's see. Uh, all right. And I think we kind of talked, I had a question here, Devin, about just, uh, but you talked about that transition. I was just wondering about, you know, being moving into that stage, but we kind of talked about kind of raising money versus going on social injustice and all that kind of stuff. And I just, I know that's been a transformation for you. Do you want to say anything else about that? I think we kind of touched on that. Yeah. I would just tell anybody that like you, once you go through it, just know you just got to keep going, lean on the other guys that are doing it. Uh, I think we found with the players coalition, the more people you had, the more power you had. And then, you know, guys can be singled out and, you know, teams remove you out of the league. Like we kind of saw that coming, you know, obviously with Cat. And his situation and how they kind of blackballed him out. Um, it was kind of like, let's bond, let's come together and do it together. And I would tell guys, um, link with the guys in your locker room, the guys around the league, um, and do it that way so you can lean on those guys um, anytime you need. Well, let's go there. I've got that down a little bit further in the script, but let's talk about, I mean, since the George Floyd murder, I mean, the NFL went 180, it felt like, on their response. Because, we, you know, I, I'm well old enough to remember Cap and kneeling and all that kind of stuff and ostracized and booted out of the league and all that kind of stuff. And there was a message sent to a lot of players like, we can do this to you too. I mean, that's what I was seeing. I'm not, wasn't in the yep. league. But, I agree. You know, and so um, how, how is it, what, where do you think the NFL is right now? How do you feel about their response? And like, what, what are the other things that you feel like we should be doing or the league should be doing in, in those directions and efforts? Yeah, I, I think the league is like, every other top business. You know, I think you saw after George Floyd, you name it, whether it was your local department store, um, the Macy's, the Nordstrom's, the Neiman Marcus, the Ben and Jerry, like everyone had that little statement came out. We support X, Y, and Z. And it was like, all right, you know, so people could be like, all right, cool. I can keep shopping there. And I think the NFL does the same thing. It's kind of like, let's check the box. Let's make sure people can keep watching us. You know, let's make everyone happy. Um, and I think what you kind of just described, you saw, you know, back in 2000, I think that was 16 or 15 when Cap was doing it. It wasn't, you know, people weren't happy seeing those things. And, you know, the NFL was like, well, we got to make sure we keep our fan base happy. And that's what they did. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Malcolm and we talked about it. You know, uh, we were all older guys, you know, I think seven or eight years in. And it was kind of like, man, they'll just get rid of us. You know, our team will get rid of us and then no one will pick us up. Uh, and I think we saw that. I think now the NFL, like the rest of the country, is seeing there's real issues here. And we were able to have conversations with owners and, and Roger Goodell and all the high ups there. And I think I think some of the things they saw, they were like that, you know, we like that. And I think the problem with the NFL as a whole is it's really ran by 32 different ownership groups. And they all have to agree to get something done. And that's tough. You know, not all of the owners 
agree with everything that's going on right now. I'm sure not all of them are happy with some of the things the league does as far as what we did to start the, the season off last year with the anthem and all of those different things. Like I'm sure there's plenty of owners like let's just play football. Um, so we kind of saw that the more pressure we put on the league of, you know, this needs to be done and, you know, we're going to have players do this. Uh, I think they come along and realize, you know, players have a huge voice in this game. Um, so I think, I think that's what it comes down to. I think they're trying, I think they're finding different ways to kind of get into this conversation. Um, but I think they have to always tiptoe um, because I don't think it's all owners want to be involved in doing these things. Um, I think that makes it a little tougher, but um, we saw the more we put pressure as players, the more we do on our own, um, the NFL will try to jump on that and, and you know, kind of ride those coattails. Um, but if we continue to put pressure on them, I think they'll do what's right and they'll, they'll try to follow the lead of the players. Yeah. Well, I guess we can only hope so. So it's a. It's I mean, like I can say I've noticed a total difference in just being a rookie in 2017. Like, I feel like the NFL has definitely listened more to players. I mean, I'm not going to say it's been 100% perfect by any means, mm -hmm. but it's definitely better than what it was in 2015. And it just like 2017, you know, I was on a uh, team where, I mean, it was just, it was a weird time because, like, I was a teammate with Eric Reed, who I'm a big fan of, and like he was kneeling. And. I mean, it was like, that was when, like, presidency changed. It was like, it was just a weird pressure. It was a weird vibe. And now, like, I feel definitely, like, just more comfortable with the whole, like, the league, it feels like, supports players' decisions to, like, have a voice instead of, hey, stop doing that. Mm -hmm. well, and, like, and even fans, like, I remember there were so many people when George got drafted to the 49ers, so many people were like, what's he going to do? Is he going to kneel? What's he going to do? And it's like, yeah. I got asked that quite, like, when I told him, yeah, George plays with 49ers, like, and this was before George had his kind of breakout years and was, like, really making a name, but it's like, everybody asked me that question, and it was, like, so much social pressure, and so, but, like, we haven't, I haven't heard that since this whole movement has started, so it's definitely... It's definitely a shift, even from the family side or the fans. Yeah, and that was something we we focused on. Uh, a lot of us talked about that all the time. Like, you know, the knee kind of took everything. That's what everyone talked about. And uh, the whole time of the inception of the Players Coalition, it was like, let's focus on the work. It's not about the protests. It's about what comes after, what we do. Um, that's what we wanted people to talk about. And, um, you know, guys are protesting all different ways. And, you know, I heard Malcolm explain it the best. He said, we, we realized protesting was a vehicle to get us to where we wanted to have these conversations, to get funding, to do it. He's like, once that vehicle takes us there, it's time to now follow through and help the people in the community, not worry about ourselves and our protests, but actually get things done for the people in the community. Um, and to me, that's the thing I'm most proud about uh, when you look out and, you know, you read some of the things we were able to do. Um, it's actual, it's actionable things getting done. There you go. Well, it sure took off. And I was just thinking, too, if I got it right, I mean, his cap, the whole thing was out of another police situation with the person of color, another person shot. And that's really what sparked it. And then here we are kind of full, full back to that whole situation again, which that's another show because we're going to get to that. But I, I know all those issues come together. So, well, let's talk then about the Players Coalition. So I'm just going to read a little mission statement and all that and toss a question up. And you guys, maybe we've talked about a bunch of this, but I think you have some really powerful stuff in here, and I do. I want to unpack it just a little bit to make sure. One, because I, I just think, you know, we hear some of these terms sometimes, and people are like, okay, I get it, you know, but I don't know if we really do get it. You know what I mean? I, so I do, I do want to spend some time. So the Players Coalition, 
um, we exist to end social injustices and racial inequality so future generations have the opportunity to thrive without barriers. Mission statement is to achieve social and racial equality using player coalition influence and support to impact systemic social and civic change in four core areas. And these are the four pillars. The first one is police and community relations. The second, criminal justice reform. The third, education. And the fourth, economic advancement in low-income communities. So kind of just framing that up. So that's that's a lot. And it really fits in, Dr. Haywood, you've really framed this up for us really well about your passion with this. So can you tell us just a little bit then, and I think you did start it, like where the Players Coalition came from and how you got to these four pillars and some of the language that we just read about. Yeah, so back in um, 2017 officially was when we were formed, but when Anquan Bolden um, had a cousin murdered by an off-duty police officer in 2016, and when that happened, he went through the whole trial process with his family and ended up being one of the um, 1% of officers ever indicted in um, a civilian casualty. And so through that, he recognized that process and all the loopholes and all of the attention he was able to bring in, in his platform, but realized that a lot of people didn't have that ability. And so wanted to know how he could continue to extend that and looked around the league to see what other guys were doing other things. Um, Malcolm Jenkins was one of them. And then the rest of our task force who we now have um, on board as well, which includes Devin. But through those, through that shared work, they wanted to all figure out how best to utilize their platform. And so a group of five of the guys went to Capitol Hill to learn from legislators how they could be most impactful. And so from the people making the laws, how can we get these laws changed? Um, and they actually turned them back to learn what they could do or to, to have them focus on what they could do at the local levels, because that's where change could happen the most quickly. At the federal level, it's a lot more um, convoluted and it's not as easy to get change pushed through. But at the local level, you can go and meet with your local district attorney or your sheriff or your judge or depending on um, what state you live in and if that's an elected official. Um, a lot of these these terms come quickly and you can get things changed most um, more quickly. And so recognizing that, then they were like, okay, cool. If we have a bunch of people in a bunch of different markets, then that's how we have a national impact. And so it started with just 12 guys, um, but now has grown to represent athletes across 12 professional sports leagues in areas of criminal justice reform, policing, community relations, education, and economic advancement. And the thing about this work is that the deeper you go, the more problems there are to solve. So our task force each year votes on sort of the primary guiding objectives within each of those pillars. And so Devin, who sits on the board of the education and economic advancement space, oversees sort of the guiding objectives um, within that framework. But that's sort of how we got started and, and how we got here. And ever since then, like Devin mentioned, it's about doing the work and keeping our, keeping our head down and doing the work, keeping our head down, doing the work, keeping our head down, doing the work. And so now that we've amassed all of these wins, um, it's about scaling and showing other people that it's as easy as you want it to be, or you can be as involved as you want to be, but change has to start somewhere. Okay. Deb, you want to add anything? Or she did a pretty good job there. Yeah, yeah no, she, 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 <laughs> That was great. Let's just cut, I'm just going to cut that up and put it as our social clip. So oh, done is done. Great. Thank you. Well, then, so... And I know we kind of, we talked a little bit about this and Devin, you introed it just a little bit with maybe some of your background and experiences, but so talking about ending social injustice and racial inequality. So, um, and maybe it's super obvious, but I, again, I don't know that it is uniformly. People kind of hear about social injustice. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and then about, and, and maybe it seems super obvious, but racial inequality and some of the things specifically that you're combating. I know each one of the pillars has their own guideposts, but maybe just kind of a general 
kind of educational one-on-one to make sure that we're all having the same conversation. Yeah, I think overall, like that word social injustice and social justice, like that term is used so much. I think a lot of times people don't really kind of give it a second thought of to what that really means. It's because it does. It covers a lot of different things. And I think one of the biggest things that we try to tackle is the systems, you know, we can tackle an issue that happens with, you know, an individual or two individuals. And, you know, you can feel like you've solved that problem. But, you know, we realize that a lot of these issues that go on are from systems, you know, in our job right now in the NFL, there's only like three black head coaches. Like that isn't because one owner didn't do it or this owner didn't like, that's a systematic thing that from the top down, they don't do it. And um, we look at things like that. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things when I first got involved um, and, and getting involved in the, the school to prison pipeline um, was understanding like what that meant. And it meant that it was a system. It was, you know, for some schools, they had resource officers that were in the schools and, you know, kids would act up and, you know, usually be in the inner city, predominantly black and brown kids in the school. So now you would have this kid who, He's having a bad day, but he's had three bad days in one week. Um, and when you unpack it all, this kid is at home, maybe with one parent. They don't feed him breakfast in the morning um, or he doesn't get dinner at night or, you know, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't get the things she needs. And then school is the time to act up. Um, but after a while, the teacher gets tired of it. So then that resource officer gets called in um, and he or she does their job and they arrest him. And now that kid ends up in court. And next thing you know, you end up with a record. Now you have, I don't even know the exact number, but it's probably like double or triple uh, the chances of being arrested and, and spending time in jail or prison in your future. And, you know, we could talk about one area, we could talk about Massachusetts, or we could talk about Colorado. But the thing is, that's a systematic thing. And um, that's something we've really tried to focus on of tackling those issues. Um, and, you know, with me, uh, it's been in schools. Um, it's been in schools where you're looking at the system of certain schools lack resources year in and year out. And like uh, Dr. Hayward mentioned of uh, bringing that funding in Massachusetts, we got to sit, you know, we talked to teachers, uh, we talked to principals, we talked to so many different people who were involved. And one teacher who was working, she said, year in and year out, the budget comes out and I don't get the funding I need. I go buy supplies and buy things for my class out of my own money. And they talked about not having a full-time science teacher. And we're just sitting there shocked. Um, but it was, that was, and this area was in Brockton, but then we went to Lynn, Massachusetts. So it didn't matter because the system was flawed and messed up um, that it didn't matter which area you went in. And that's what we tried to attack. We went after the policy and legislation from trying to get funding, not just to one school and bring spotlight to one school, but let's get it to every school in Massachusetts. And um, we saw that has the biggest impact when we can go um, and try to attack from the top down uh, has really uh, created change for people and created change immediately. Yeah, well, well spoken. Yeah, it's kind of going upstream toward it. So instead of the individual act where one person might feel, you know, discriminated against or left out or whatever, really thinking about that situation and then what rules, laws, policies, structural systems feed into that that allows it to continue and to replicate over and over and over so that kind of a much larger group of the population is impacted by those policies so it's all about systematic pieces as well. Dr. Hayward, I tell you just here, going back and forth there, I can see the mind is worried. 
going there. So anything you want to add to that? I thought Devin did a great job with that. But anything you want to add about just talking about, and now we're kind of talking about systemic issues as it relates to some of the work that you guys do and just defining that for people so they really get a picture about what it is that you're really trying to do. Yeah, I think you can look at it um, sort of like the piping in a house. So if a pipe bursts, you're going to go fix the pipe. But if the pipe was designed to just pour into the living room every single day, then you're probably going to want to redesign that framework. And so that's what we're looking at when we talk about systemic issues. And so when the statistics come out about crime rates, education, dropouts, um, those point towards black and brown students, but it's that deeper dive that you realize it's not on the students by placing the statistics, by focusing on the, the racial or eth ethnic backgrounds of the students, you're taking the onus away from those in positions of power who've designed the systems that they're falling through the cracks in. Um, and so a lot of the work, our work around system change is highlighting that the students aren't the problem, that they're actually the solution if we would just invest in them. Because if we're gonna pour into our next generation, then we wanna pour into them from an equity perspective, making sure that everyone has equal access and equal opportunity. And that's not just giving, I think just quickly defining the difference between um, equity and equality is equality is giving everyone the same thing and equity is giving everyone the same thing so that everyone's on the same page. Because if you have students who start back behind the start line, students who start at the start line, students who start ahead, and you give them all a 10 foot start, everyone still ends up in the same position. But if you put them all on the same line, that's what changing systems does. And so through a lot of the education work we do um, in getting those local school grants, making sure that there are STEM and STEAM labs for students to be able to learn from, that's how you start to build generational wealth and build communities that are representative of, um, or start to build, build frameworks that are representative of the communities that they're um, housing. Okay, well spoken. Yeah, I was just thinking about it too. So like, you know, right now we're seeing nationally battles over voting limitations being imposed because there are certain people not very happy about the last election and they feel like we let too many people vote apparently. So they're going to make it more difficult. At least that's my spin. The Players Coalition doesn't have to say that. So that I was even going back to, I remember after World War II, you know, reading about it, you know, just housing and redlining and all that kind of shit, you know, where like, you know, funding out of the federal government came out and it was restricted based on race. You know what I mean? And then where you get to live then creates educational opportunities or not. And then all that gets pushed into the same thing. And then it just, it's just a kind of one thing after another. Last year when we did the Giants, you know, we always do, we try to do a, a charity out of that. I can't remember the name of the group that we did in New York. ECS, Brooklyn yeah. Community School District. And one of the things they really talked about is how, you know, invariably in the communities in which are underserved, that's where all the power plants go, you know, and so then you've got all these health issues that trigger. And so all this stuff feeds into it over and over and over again. So anyway, so systemic issues, I think we're kind of getting that. I looked up a list of some for education. So maybe we'll spin into the, some of the education pieces if that's okay. And maybe we'll come back and look at discipline as well. But either one of you want to say anything more about just kind of systemic and that. And, you know, I was thinking about outcome measurements for that, but I, it feels like it's so dang big and it, there's so many different issues. It's kind of hard to list some of those. Maybe that we'll circle back on some of those things, unless you have something you want to talk about for sure. But maybe we can move into education though otherwise. Yeah, I think we can move into education. Um, the one thing I will say though about the different issues is so our work is divided get, uh, is divided into four pillars, but those overlap so much like you were saying, if you have an education issue, you also probably have a food scarcity issue and you also probably have a housing issue and you also probably have a criminal justice issue. Um, and so there's so much overlap between all of this work that you, you almost can't separate it out. And so in having those guiding objectives, it's how we stay focused 
so that progress can be made at all. Otherwise, you'll just be spinning in circles. Yeah, pick out at least something and make that a goal and then work on one piece at a time. So, okay, so let's talk then. Let me um, jump down here. All right, so we did that. So guiding objectives. So I'll just toss a couple of these out and then we can go anywhere you want with them. And Devin or Dr. Ewitt. So education, guiding objectives. First one, uh, bridging the technological and resource gap in low-income communities to provide access to equitable education opportunities for youth in under-resourced schools. And the second is addressing and reducing racial disparity in school discipline. And then you've got divided out areas of focus. And I think the first two relate to number one up above and then the last one, but the first one is addressing the digital divide. So kind of technology within the school systems. And then the second, education resources and funding equity, which probably is related to that, but also bigger than that. And then third is this disparate discipline in schools. And then there's a couple stats, and I'll just kind of toss them out. And then you guys, I've got a few questions, but I want you guys to talk. Over 42 million Americans did not have home internet. And the second one was more than 4 million households with school-aged children have no home internet. And I just wondered, and you can come back to that, Dr. Hayward, are there statistics as to the percentage of those numbers that relate to persons of color. You know what I mean? I, I mean, it, it's that population you talked about that. And then it says also that two times more likely to be suspended if you were a black student in a school setting. Actually, I looked at that and everything I found was between 3.2 and 3.8 for times more likely in numbers. But anyway, so, uh, so those are as far as those objectives. So anything on those things you wanna address or anywhere you wanna go? Cause I was just gonna work down the list of those kind of three areas of focus, but if you, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about those, maybe statistics or anything else. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Devin. I'll just jump in just uh, really fast. Just, I think we've always talked about the technology and kind of resource gap within schools. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hit. And I think that put a bright light for everyone to see. I think, um, I think especially as NFL players, we all go into schools and, there's times you walk into a school and you're like, dang, you look at this school, like this high school is crazy. Like you'll be blown away by everything in the high school. And then literally you can go to a high school 15 minutes away in a different area. And they have kids doing classwork outside in the hallway because there's not enough room inside the classroom. Um, so I think that was something that we knew, but then when the pandemic hit, um, a lot of us individually and then collectively we were like, man, we got to we got to get more involved. We got to help out. And I think through there, um, we had players and we gave grants from the coalition um, to different school districts and, and doing things like that, because the digital divide uh, is one thing when you're in school and you can go in and there's computers in school. And there might not be enough, but there's at least access to a kid can stay after school. You can do that but when the schools closed down and you didn't have that at your house. And it's a pandemic, so no one was letting you in their house for sure. Um, kids couldn't get work done. And I know for, you know, for myself and my brother, we saw that right in our hometown in two districts that we kind of grew up in. Um, of we started Chromebooks for Kids because we realized, like, hey, these kids don't have a laptop. And then, you know, like Dr. Haywood just said, you're like, all right, these kids don't have a laptop. And it was like, oh, yeah, they also don't have Internet access. So it was now it was trying to create hotspots and, and buying different things for kids to have both a laptop and a Wi-Fi. Um, but it, it is, it's very saddening when you kind of you get thrown in the middle of it and you're reading like you just read those stats and you hear them. Um, and then you get to meet different families and people are reaching out to you saying thank you because now you're seeing it with your own eyes um, how this 
you know, this digital divide that a kind of phrase that we'll say so easily, you don't sometimes realize the impact of a kid that might be a smart kid, but they just can't get their work done because they don't have the resources to get it done. Um, to me, it was one thing that stuck out and uh, it felt good being able to get involved, but realizing just how much more needs to be done uh, to help these students uh, achieve the goals that they're capable of. Not even, you know, no, we're not even talking about pushing them to go, you know, above and beyond, but just their capabilities are so limited because they don't have the resource. Right. To that resources piece, it's about income inequality. And so the reason why they don't have the resources is because they don't have access or they don't have the funding to be able to purchase it. Um, and so when we expected all the students to go online when everything happened last year, but there's no Wi-Fi and there's no computers, then how are they going to learn the way that they were before? These students are getting left behind in a system that was already, they were already getting left behind in. And so that just exacerbated um, that gap. And when 82% uh, of white people own a computer versus 58% and 57% of black and Latinx communities, what happens then is those communities rely on cell phones. Well, they're also two times more likely to have their cell phone shut off because of inability to pay um, for whatever outstanding charges there are. And so it just, it's a snowball effect of all of the issues, but it comes down to really income. And so when we talk about wage gaps and all these things that aren't really related to education, it trickles down into what students are able to advance and what students are able to um, make it out of the communities that they come from that are holding them back. Well, just so my short list, I just did a little, I looked at a couple different sites, but so we have the school discipline issue with education. We'll come back to that. Less funding for school and predominantly black schools. Um, fewer computers and access to the internet. And there's stats with all this kind of stuff. One, there was one on um, black students with a GPA of 3.5 or higher, they end up going to community college or no college at a much higher percentage than white students. And a lot of that has to do with resourcing and funding and that despite the good grades and other pieces. Um, they have lower graduation rates, which I think comes back to what you were saying, Dr. Hayward. It's not about the student though, but they're thrust into a system that's not really built for them in a way that is inviting. And there's a lot of other issues with it. And then it really talked a lot about increasing debt, that they tend to leave with 56% more debt after a four-year college education than their fellow white students. So just a whole lot of stuff. And then when you bury that on top, and then if you get hired, if you do get hired, and then you get a job that's not paying you as much as maybe you should be making, it just, again, continues to snowball. So there's a whole lot of kind of systems issues that feed into all that kind of stuff. So, well, okay, um, Devin, I, think I was gonna jump through and just talk a little bit about uh, the areas of focus, if that's okay. Does it work? Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about access to equitable education opportunities in under-resourced schools. So what's the coalition doing there and what are the concerns and take us through that one? Yeah, I think that was kind of a part of the, the thing you heard earlier about adding uh, the Promise Act, adding $1.5 billion into um, a school district like Massachusetts. It was because there were so many lacking resources. And like we said earlier, obviously you have the education part, but, you know, you would go in some schools and, you know, that school needed resources to have a social worker on hand and they needed to have someone, a uh, psychologist on hand for some of these students were going through different traumas at home. Um, and we realized when, you know, like Dr. Hayward just said, when you break it down and, you say it's not the student, it's because there's so many other factors that go on. Um, and I think from there is when uh, we started to see as we give these resources, because one of the biggest things is even as we went and we were talking to some of these legislators, there's always this fear of, 
we can't give the money to those school districts because they don't know what to do with it. And it's this kind of thought of these schools are not bad because of the students and because it's because the people running it are bad. And you get all of these different excuses, I think, that get kind of thrown on different public schools and different school districts that are always, they're just false. You have a school that's never had the resources. And, you know, I think there's been studies where you see when you do pour in different resources, you do actually look at a school and you say, hey, if we give them this, um, then they will be successful. And you see it. And I think that's what really pulled me in Massachusetts. They had did a commission um, back in 2015 that was one of the first reasons why they realized they had this lack in funding because they hired people to come in, do a report. And they went through all those school districts. And at the time, Massachusetts had one of the largest disparities um, in student achievements, one of the biggest gaps in all of the country. And if you think about it, Massachusetts has some of the top colleges, top high schools in the country, but it has some of the worst. And because of that, they brought someone in. And as they look through it, they realize like, hey, you have this huge gap in funding. You need to put about, you know, over a billion dollars in. And for four years, they went back and forth. And every summer they were in session and they would say, oh, man, sorry, we couldn't come up. We couldn't come up with anything to fix this solution. And I remember the first time we, we went and we met with different people. And I asked them, I said, when you guys sit and you discuss these things, does no one realize like four years have passed? So that means there, was, there were high school students who came in as ninth graders, as freshmen in high school. And they went a whole four years with you guys knowing that there's an issue. I said, so think about how many kids aren't going to be able to do the things that they could have done if you would have fixed this issue. And like Dr. Hayward said earlier, with players getting involved, the first year we got in kind of at the end um, and nothing really happened. And then that next year um, is when we went all out, you know, testify the first year we just wrote an op-ed um, uh, that got published in the paper. And, you know, it, some people looked at it, but I think the shocking thing for everyone was when the following year showed up, we were right back in it. We were showing up. Um, but that that was one of the things that you could just see that gap of inequality and funding and resources. Um, and you see a state they're still trying to fix that and get it done the right way because now you have the money. But it's not like, you know, this this bill passes and, you know, somebody deposits at one point. And so it's still a fight to get the different things here and the different. But, you know, it, it's moving in the right direction. I think one of the biggest things is if I'm a young high school kid, it gives me hope. When I read that in the paper and I see that, it gives me hope that, hey, as I'm entering school, my school is going to be better so I can be better. I can do things that I, I probably couldn't do before. Um, so I, I think that is one of the encouraging things that comes from, uh, comes with it. Yeah, that's weird. And I think, Dr. Hayward, too, I'm just thinking back to what you said about, you know, somebody's been 20 yards ahead for 200 years or, you know, whatever you want to make it. And you're back here and if you give everybody the same thing, we're still stepping but like on that one, even if you give them whatever, you know, the school's 1.5 billion, you know, they've had lack of resources for so many years. There's got to be, you know, there's a curve about, you know, getting the infrastructure in place, getting new teachers hired, getting all the systems in place. And so it, just because you hand them a check doesn't mean it's going to be fixed overnight either. So there's a long process about reinvesting and trying to get everybody back up to the right level. So Dr. Hayward, did you want to add something on that one? 
No, to that point, I was just going to say that change is slow. But to Devin's point, I think he brings up a really good point about hope. Imagine what that means as a child to know that someone believes in you enough to make a difference in your life. And so of George and Devin, all the people that believed in you guys and what that meant on the hard days when practice was tough on the games that maybe didn't go the way you wanted, but you had that person in your ear who was encouraging you. For these students, that's their version is having someone say, I believe in you. I think you deserve these resources so that you could be the best version of yourself. And here's what we're going to do about it. It's just changed their lives. Yeah. Just, it gives them a chance just to like, like I mean, for me, like I'm always like, hey, like be your best every single day. But it's a lot easier to be your best when you have the resources and you have the teachers and you have the infrastructure and you have the tablets and you have the Wi-Fi. So then you can actually be your best. Mm-hmm. And so, like, And then you can stack those great days on top of each other. And you have kids that actually have ample opportunities to go out and do what they actually, you know, they dreamed of doing since they were a kid. Yeah. Be your best and I'm going to help you do it. Yeah. yeah. Just help them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like having cleats and a field to play on, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> play at Walmart, you know, barefooted, so it's all good. Okay, wow. so next issue, address and reduce racial disparity in school discipline. So I know we kind of touched on this one. So my background, Devin, I don't know if you know, it, I got 20 years as a criminal defense lawyer. So I spent a lot of time, and I've seen that pipeline, and then I worked a lot in schools on kind of conflict resolution and this stuff as well. And the stats that always came up were, that were gender issues, one, is boys get disciplined at a much higher rate than girls, partly because guys act differently, you know, and especially on the playground. And then the race issue was really important. And then one of the stats that went unreported a lot was also the gender and race of the kind of the, the proctor or the teacher who was making the referrals, you know what I mean? And so sometimes, so if there were, you know, males out on the playground, they would under-report because they would just go over and talk to the guy, hey, settle down, we can work this out and do that. And so that behavior has got to be really different. But your point, I thought you made very eloquently earlier, is once they have a few disciplinary marks there, then they miss some school, then it creates situations, and then they have a much higher percentage of ending up in the juvenile justice system. And once they trigger the juvenile justice system, the stat goes out the roof the, the next time they get anything even close. And so, like, I'm out of Iowa and Wisconsin is where I worked primarily in my years. And 15 or 16 on, like, if you did anything major at all, adult-wise, they're going to wave you to adult court and you are off, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so all of that stuff that happens, you know, from elementary to junior high, particularly there in the juvenile court, it all feeds into that system. And so then you've got a couple chips on your shoulder. And when the judge sees that, particularly if you're black, we'll see you later. You know what I mean? And there's just no messing around. And so it all adds up. And so those school discipline things do really matter. They add up really quickly for kids particularly with kids without a lot of resources. So that's my little pitch on it. But please, you know, feel free. Tell us where the Players Coalition is on that and some of the research that you guys have seen and what we're trying to do. So we did um, a lot of work here over, over the last year just in terms of research and understanding what these systems look like. And over one million and a half students attend schools with police officers but no counselors. And so when you think about when children act out, it's probably an underlying issue that they're trying to avoid or indirectly address and understanding whatever trauma it is that they're facing is showing up in their behavior. And so if you're having an officer and not a counselor, you're not really getting to the root cause of whatever that problem is. And to your point, you're just feeding them into the system hand over foot. And so what happens specifically for black and brown children is um, black children specifically are three times more likely to be disciplined. And then when you get into the gender and race issues, it's double that. So black girls are six times more likely to be disciplined over white girls. And so having that 
presence on on campus that is showing you that you are a threat and that you aren't someone worth helping and that you are reinforcing all of these um, stereotypes, it means something over time as it's compounded and then they're in these systems. And so all of that to say, when you get into these disciplinary um, issues, again, the stats read one way, but the story tells another another um, side. Indeed. Yeah. And I would only add, I think, you know, what Dr. Hayward just said, the stereotypes and the things that people expect. And I think the hardest thing is as a young kid, when you hear these stereotypes or you go through that early in your life, as you, like you just said, when you're 15, 16, not only do you get treated differently, you start to believe those things because your early years in school, you were disciplined way more than maybe your best friend who was white, who you guys did almost everything together, but you were treated a little differently. And I think that is, you know, what is very heartbreaking because you, you know, I got to go to, I went to, me and my brother went to a, a jail in Boston and I remember a kid, he was 24 or 25 years old. And he said, I hate that my date is coming out, coming up to get out because a lot of times I think I'm better off being in here than being out there. Cause when I'm out there, I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to get involved. And I think that's what you create when, a young person goes through the same thing and they feel like no matter what I do, it always kind of stacks up against me. It always comes back. Um, and I think that's what we talked about earlier. Like you take that hope away. Um, you just, you, you don't get anything. You just get a person who's hopeless, who really can't really, they can't do anything that's going to matter or help society um, because they really can't get out of their own way because they don't think it's possible. And, and Oh. happening at the school level too is really a microcosm of what's happening in society at large. We're tasking police officers to do things that are technically out of their scope. Well, however many dollars we're putting into having these school resource officers present or metal detectors or whatever other security passes is money that's not going into mental health professionals to again address the trauma that's underlying from being in this neighborhood and not having this nutrition and not having the resources you need to just survive and thrive. Um, we're seeing that at the policing level, recognizing too that in most instances when police are called, there should have probably potentially been a mental health professional called where in which these issues then escalate and we see um, all of the trickle down that's happened over the past year, but has really been happening over the last several decades. We're just seeing it now because the media has agreed to place attention on these issues. Yeah, you know, it just and we don't have time today to do it, but I guess when you're talking, we, we've mentioned two or three times kind of underlying issues with students, you know, from home and other situations and lack of resources. I mean, when you talk about systemic racism and then the stress that it puts on a family system, and then if you look at the criminal justice system and what it's done, you know, to communities of color around families and community. So the stressors that they're facing at home are also a result of the systemic racism and injustices that we're actually talking about. And so when that cycles through, it actually hits the family in that kind of way. And then that manifests itself at the school and then it just feeds into itself again. And the next thing you know, that person's involved in the juvenile justice system and now we just created a whole nother system. So it, it really, the way it unfolds on top of each other over and over and over again is really obviously what you guys are trying to work on and, and make a difference in. So, okay, um, well then let's, uh, then the one that there was a lot of information you guys provide, I'll let you guys run with this, the digital divide. And there was a lot of stuff that you guys have been successful in doing. And I'll just, uh, let's see, I had those stats. Yeah. So 
Under that social media campaign, calls with the FCC, those were listed in there that you guys have addressed, trying to raise uh, access and as far as funds, as far as that digital difference, grant making contributions to national education, nonprofit organizations, schools. Players Coalition has invested over 350,000 in local education grants in 11 different educational markets. And there was a 50,000 donation to install new internet access points to at least 25 different school campuses. And I know there's more and there's other PC wins too that Dr. Haywood provided with me, but you guys want to talk Dan, a little bit about the digital divide. And I know we've been going along, Devin, so I appreciate it. I know you're busy. So thank you. And also you, Dr. Haywood. So you guys talk to us a little bit about the efforts there because you already, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I think those efforts were, it's what you saw was like, hey, we can do this right now. Um, the pandemic hit and things were going on in, in a bunch of different school districts. We actually had a huge Zoom where uh, we had um, the players on who, who chose different schools to give to. And we had a representative from different schools or school districts um, that received the funds um, where they were able to talk about kind of what they were going through and what the funds meant and then us as players kind of talking about what we saw, how we were trying to help. And, um, you know, everything you read was just, you know, a reaction to, hey, like this is an issue. This issue has been there. We've been, you know, kind of, I won't even say behind the scenes. I, I would say we were doing it. No one really cared, but we were working at it. We were chomping at it. Um, but now a pandemic hits. We need to do more. And I think that was what you saw was a response to um, something, you know, that none of us imagined ever going through has hit. How can we, you know, stop talking about it and stop tweeting or doing a one-off? How can we now do something that helps right away? And um, that's what you saw, the different grants, the donations to put uh, internet access in. Um, it was, you know, guys, you know, coming up with ideas and, you know, all of the people on the Prayer Coalition staff, like Dr. Haywood and, like she mentioned, Angela and Rebecca, all of them and Lindsay, um, everyone kind of brainstorming like, hey, we could do this. And um, in our, within our group chat, you just see things going off like, hey, does anybody want to do this? And I think from there, guys are like, hey, I'm in. Hey, I want to do this. Hey, I know this school that's going to be really that uh, will, uh, really benefit from this. And, and we kind of took off from there. And um, next thing you saw, we had 11 different markets um, where we were doing something at the same time. And um, I think that's one of the best parts of being in this coalition is um, an issue arises. We don't just attack it in one area. Uh, we say, what other areas are similar? Let's just attack all of them and, and get it done at the same time. And um, that's what we were able to do with the digital divide. And the collaboration across leagues has been really cool too, because to those school grants, we had MLS players, NFL players, lacrosse players, WNBA players, everyone was tapping in to make sure that these students were getting the resources that they deserved. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground. So thank you very much for those. If there's any final, feel free to toss it in. I guess I always like to kind of close out with just thinking about, you know, so, you know, we're probably not quite at a million downloads yet. <clears throat> wink, wink. But anyway, we're working on it. But anyway, it's all good. But to those who do listen, we will get some just because of the two guys that are on here. And Dr. Haywood, you're very notable as well. So I'm sure that'll push it over the top. Uh, my presence does not do anything, of course. But what would you say, though, uh, for folks listening? So and I, I just there's no way for me to put this out there, except so like I, I'm out of the mindful meditation kind of slash Buddhist kind of, you know, you know, that, and I work with players on mindset, you know, and that kind of stuff. And. And I was just the comment I, I did want to make too before I forget it. We talked about the 
youth that get involved in the system and for so many years people tell them they're no good and they don't get any hope, um, that's a mindset too. Think about how much we work on mindset in athletics and that mindset makes a difference as well. So, um, but I guess, you know, some of this thing is about having a dialogue around people to try to open minds and think about doing all that kind of stuff. And I'm paying a lot of attention to, there's a group called Black and Buddhist who are really working on kind of mindfulness and where that takes their practice and how to have dialogues and where it leads us on kind of all this race stuff. And so, um, so obviously that's something that has to happen to have more conversations around those kind of things, as well as, and I know the focus for the Players Coalition is about actionable pieces that address systemic issues. And I do totally get that. But for people that are listening, what are some of the things? So one, if you're an NFL player or a professional sports person, get involved with the Players Coalition. So I'll make that plug. But secondly, then for the general public who might, you know, come across our podcast, what would you encourage? What are some steps or actionable things that, you know, individuals could do that have some resources that feel like, hey, this makes a lot of sense. I want to make a difference. What would you ask them to do? Uh, I would tell them first, keep listening to the Hidden Pearls podcast. Hey, subscribe. Let's go. (laughs) But I I think I appreciate you guys doing this because I think it is important. I think people can – get more involved the more they listen to different things different people who are doing things i think sometimes we don't realize that you know you could be the person calling your legislator and getting them to push a bill and and convincing them and uh being a part of the masses that get to push them a certain direction uh you can be the person that goes out there and votes for the new district attorney uh because you want to see a more progressive uh kind of a progressive following and and different things and, and policies and laws you want to see those things happen you could vote and do those things um and then i think one of the easiest things you can do is have conversations and um i think that happens no matter where you are i think people sometimes are like man i'm not george kittle or Devin mccordy i can't go and have a press conference or have you know hundreds of thousands or millions of followers but they don't realize like sometimes you can walk in your own home and make a difference with someone that never would have thought the way you think now. And um, I've had some really good conversations with people um, that I just know in my life, people have had conversations with their parents because their parents are raised in a different time and in a different area where they didn't have the ideology that their kids had. Um, and they did see certain people as inferior and they did believe in some of the things um, that have happened in the past in our country. Um, and those conversations, they said it was tears. It was, there. but like those simple conversations, conversations you can have at home, at work. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that we all can do as parents um, is raise our kids a certain way. And I know that was um, a lot of conversations we had within our locker room and uh, some of the personal meetings we had uh, was talking about that, of, of making a difference in the world and for the future um, of raising your kids and not allowing them to see the stereotypes and to believe in those things. Um, can make a huge impact. But um, I'm one of those people that I always encourage people don't look at, you know, what you're not and and determine what you can and can't do instead of just pushing yourself and going out there um, and trying to make a difference. And I think there's so many different things that are out there in the podcast world, articles that you can read, books you can read um, that really will open your mind up and kind of inspire you to give back and, and make a difference in your own way. I would start biasly with education um, because you can't really speak eloquently on something if you don't really know what it is that you're talking about. And so when you educate yourself, then you can lend into having conversations with other people, which 
may not be as sexy as George and Devin talking about some of their favorite football moments, but this is the stuff that impacts people's day-to-day lives and changes people's day-to-day lives. And so continuing to have these conversations, whether in private or in public, is what's most impactful moving forward. And then to Devin's point about getting in touch with your local elected officials, making sure that when you vote, you know who you're voting for and what you're voting for, but also staying up on them, making sure that they're being held accountable for the things you voted them in for, because if they're not, then it's time to get those folks out of office. We see now all of the disconjointed issues happening um, in our democracy, specifically around voting, and that are happening with elected officials, people that we put in positions of power to protect our best interests, and we aren't really seeing that come to fruition. And so the more that we can stay educated, have conversations, um, be educated around voting, and then hold people accountable is um, sort of the long game in all of this. Yeah. So we have the macro, big picture, but then Devin, I really appreciate what you're saying because I'm just going to say like in white circles, right? I mean, that's just where, because that's primarily, I mean, I have a long history of, I've also coached football a lot. So I've got, you know, people all over, but you know, people are, they're afraid to have those conversations. I mean, just quite honestly, and um, they try to get kind of educated on it, but they're scared they're going to screw it up. And I think, you know, what we're kind of trying to talk about is it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, just be curious, engage somebody. And I think of it a lot like, I don't know if you, you probably remember, but for a while there in the airport, it was like, if you see something, say something, you know, like a bag or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's kind of what I encourage folks to think about is like, if you see something that you know is not right, or like a comment, or, you know, that reinforces a stereotype, or is, you know, maybe a microaggression of discrimination, whether big or small, I mean, at some point, it will continue until people have the courage to stand up and say something. And even if you don't know exactly what to say, but to put yourself on the line. And that's really, I think, you know, part of the growth, um, you know, for a lot of folks in that way. So we're trying to encourage some of that. So anyway, okay, anything else? Any any suggestions or do's or anything you want to wrap up with before we kind of close off? You guys have been absolutely terrific, super patient with us. Thank you so much for sharing about Players Coalition. So Dr. Hayward, we're going to talk. I got some more dates coming for you, okay? So we're going to get these other ones scheduled here, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, and we'll keep going on that. But I don't want to cut you guys off. If there's anything you want to close with or any other suggestions for people or any final comments? No, no, I I just appreciate the opportunity to come on here. And like I said before, uh, you guys spotlighting the different things that, you know, a lot of times us as athletes uh, don't get the opportunity to talk about, I think is awesome. So I just encourage you guys to keep doing that. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that too. I, you know, one of my, I guess, overall frustrations because I've been close to the sports world for so long and you know a lot of very good professional players, how smart, articulate, compassionate, and caring they really are. And the general public still has some of this notion, you know, of kind of a dumb jock kind of thing. And it, it really, it really gets old after a while, you know, and there's only one, you know, there's a few people here and there that kind of make sports look bad. But if you look across the leagues, like Dr. Hayward, you're getting a great opportunity to kind of cross a lot of different, there are so many really smart, bright, articulate people, like I said, and they do really care. Um, and they really get discounted a lot. And so I think this is a great opportunity for folks to step up and maybe make a difference in the ways that they can. So well, we will continue to do this. I'm excited about part two already. So I can't wait to go on that. Devin, stay healthy. We wish you the very best. Maybe we'll see you down the road in the playoffs or something. I don't know who knows what, but um, you've had a great career, your inspiration, your Walter Payton stuff is just, it's really amazing. So we really, you know, it's, it's great. 
to get to know you just a little bit. I've kind of read the bio and followed you some. It's really exciting. So maybe we'll have another opportunity to get on and talk some more football at some point. But anyway, wish you and your family the very best. Dr. Haywood, thank you for all that you do and all the time you put in and all your repeated emails back and forth with me. So thank you for your patience. Uh, and then I'll get with you again. Like I said, we'll get the other ones set up here for the rest of this month. Okay. Emmy Lou, we kind of just ran off on you. Anything you want to add? I do have a couple of comments, dad. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so the, I guess the one thing that I want to make really clear is if you're watching this podcast, you are on the winning side of the digital divide. And I think that we take it so for granted. And this is something like whenever we talk about the digital divide, it like, it just shocks me because it's like, like I have access to literally everything because I have my computer, because I have my phone, because I have internet. And I think that so many people, it's like, if you're watching this, like you are winning, you have access to everything on the internet. You have access to free yoga, mindfulness. You have access to, to Devin, to Dr. Hayward, to Bruce, to me, to George. Like you have access to people who are like thought leaders and who are out there doing things. And just to take a second and think about the people and the kids who don't have that access and who don't have the opportunities to just get on and learn something, or if they want to take a class or if they want to do yoga or anything like it is bull that people are fighting to keep that and take that away from people or who are focusing so much more on discipline and controlling a situation and controlling a person rather than helping them heal and helping them change a system. And so just remember people with, those with great power have great responsibility. And I think that if you have this power, you have power if you have the internet and you have access to so many different things and it is limitless, the things that you can do. So maybe you're not a professional football player. Maybe you don't have a podcast, but there are so many things like Devin and Dr. Hayward were saying, like you can call people, you can post about it on social media, you can be an advocate and you can shine and be that light, like be the light, be the change that you want to see in the world. So Dr. Hayward, Devin, um, I think you guys are real world superheroes and I'm super excited to just continue to collaborate with you guys. And if there's anything that we can do, we are all in. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. George. Oh, I mean, for me, like, I mean, really just the last year, all I've done try to do is just like, just have an open mindset and just listen because I don't really know a lot. And, um, I mean, that was like a really fun time for me just to listen because I feel like I learned a lot today just about, you know, just that one pillar of education. And I'm excited for the next couple of podcasts because, I mean, I, I know more now than I, you know, did, you know, all of last year. And so just that fact that I feel like I'm actually more comfortable that I could actually speak on some of these topics. So I just appreciate you guys um, talking at a level where I could understand it and actually feel like I can, you know, say some of those same things and have a little passion behind it because, I mean, I don't know everything, but the fact that I can you know, listen to you guys and you make it make sense. So I really appreciate that. And the whole, like when you build a pipe with a house that has water running in the living room, you might want to fix it. That made a lot of sense. And that made a light bulb quit, uh, click in my head. So thank you for that. Oh, that's like Dr. Hayward. He's waiting for you to send us an email about an opportunity for George. So we'll oh, see let's go. <laughs> Drink the Kool-Aid. Join the Players Coalition, Georgie. I'm mixing it up right here, buddy. Um, <laughs> Well, extra sugar in there. All right. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so very much. Appreciate it very much. And then uh, we'll uh, get part two out here soon, and then we'll keep rolling and then kind of see where it takes us. So it should be good. So you have a good luck rest of the summer and into the season. Be careful, be safe. And Dr. Hayward will be talking with you shortly. Okay? Hey, good luck to you too, George. I appreciate right. it. Thanks, guys. Thanks Take care. So All right. Thank you so much.
See you guys. <laughs>